Welcome to Watchmen on the Wall, a daily outreach of Southwest Radio Ministries and SWRC.com. Today, Larry Stamm continues his look at the Jewish roots of Christianity, and Mac Dominic shares something you might not know about Masons and your church. Our website, SWRC.com, now has over 900 items designed to educate and encourage you in your walk with Jesus. Books and DVDs at SWRC.com. Your favorite authors and teachers helping bring clarity to the chaos with free shipping on all orders over $100. SWRC.com. Jewish Roots of Christianity by Larry Stamm is one of those resources you'll find at SWRC.com. The book, complete television series on DVD, and complete audio series on CD are all available at SWRC.com or by calling 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. Larry Stamm, who will be one of the speakers at this weekend's Prophecy Conference in Fort Wayne, Indiana, is back with another installment of our teaching series looking at the Jewish roots of Christianity. Shalom, friends. Larry Stamm here. So glad you are joining us for our continuing study in the Jewish roots of Christianity. We are in the midst of a biblical survey of God's redemptive plan through history from the book of Genesis through the book of Revelation. Today, we are going to briefly explore some messianic prophecy. We're also going to talk about the Trinity in the Old Testament. What is messianic prophecy? It's the Bible's predictions about Jesus written in the Old Testament centuries before he was born. Why, as believers in Jesus Christ, should we study Messianic prophecy? Well, it will strengthen our faith in the Scriptures, and it will also help us connect the dots. Messianic prophecy, friends, serves to help validate the claims of the Bible and is a credible witness for Jesus. So as we think about evangelism, as we think about sharing the Lord and the truth claims of Christianity with others. Messianic prophecy is a valuable tool. What I want to encourage you to do is go online and look up the hundreds and hundreds of prophecies about Jesus for yourself. There are literally hundreds of prophecies regarding the first coming of Jesus, all of which were fulfilled. So, As followers of the Lord Jesus, we can have, therefore, utmost confidence that every single prophecy concerning the second coming of Jesus will also be fulfilled in his perfect time in order to accomplish his purposes and plans. What I want to do is just unpack and give you the backstory of just a couple of Messianic prophecies And when we think about Messianic prophecy, every Messianic prophecy has a backstory that is powerful and compelling and is also a powerful witness for the Lord and a powerful tool in your witness to others. The first one I want to share is a very common Messianic prophecy, but I think you will see that there is more than meets the eye. Micah 5 verse 2 prophesies that Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Micah 5.2, the word of God says, But thou, Bethlehem Ephratah, 
Though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth unto me, that is, to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. A couple of specifics I want to point out just from the prophecy in Micah 5.2 is that this one who is going to be born in Bethlehem, this one who is going to be ruler in Israel, note at the very end of the verse that his goings forth had been from of old, from everlasting. In other words, from the days of eternity. So this one who is to be ruler in Israel is eternal. Very interesting. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, and Luke chapter 2 obviously tell us that Messiah Jesus was born in Bethlehem. But I want you to think about some of the backstory. You may not be aware, but at the time of the birth of Christ, Mary and Joseph were living in Nazareth. Jesus, we know, sometimes is known as the Nazarene. He was from Nazareth but he was actually born in Bethlehem. Why? Because the Caesar, the Roman leader, called a census. And that would mean that Joseph and Mary had to go to the home of their origins. For Joseph, that would have been Bethlehem in Hebrew, Bethlehem. Friends, it was around 90 miles, depending on the path you took from Nazareth south to Bethlehem. And think about the fact that they were in the first century traveling by foot. Maybe they had a donkey, but they were walking, and it may have taken them many days. It might have taken five, six, seven. Scholars aren't exactly sure, but it took many, many days to get from Nazareth to Bethlehem. I want you to think about the timing and the circumstances. Caesar didn't call a census every day. And when he did call the census at this particular time, Joseph and Mary had to travel some 90 miles by foot. And by the way, Mary is carrying child. She's with baby Jesus. And note that she could have given birth before they made it. They could have gotten tied up. They could have gotten to Bethlehem and done their business, and she would have been on her way back to Nazareth and somewhere between Bethlehem and Nazareth or even in Nazareth, given birth. But no. You see, at just the right time, God sent forth his son. And I want you to think about this prophecy, not so much in the terms of the fact that, yes, he fulfilled prophecy and that he was born in Bethlehem, but I want you to think about this prophecy in terms of God's perfect timing. Sometimes as Christians, we think God is late. Most times we don't think that he's early. But I want you to know that God's timing is perfect. He's an on-time God. In fact, in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, the Word of God says about time that God has made everything beautiful in its time. In fact, in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, the Apostle Paul wrote these words, But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son made of a woman made under the law. So when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, not a moment early, not a moment late. Isn't that incredible, the backstory? I want you to understand that the word Bethlehem means house of bread. Bet lechem. Bet house lechem in the Hebrew meaning bread. And if you remember, Jesus said of himself in John 6.35, I am the bread of life. 
So, friends, think about this. The bread of life was born in the house of bread at exactly the right time. The next prophecy I want to point out to you is the fact that Jesus was a prophet greater than Moses, Deuteronomy 18.15. We see this prophecy. God speaking through Moses said, And the Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee of thy brethren, like unto me and to him ye shall hearken. So we see Messiah would be a prophet greater than Moses. By the way, in Judaism, Moses is Israel's greatest prophet. But there is a prophet greater than Moses. His name is Yeshua, Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, we read these words. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus, who is faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in his house. For this man, Jesus, was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who hath builded the house hath more honor than the house. For every house is built by some men, but he that built all things is of God. And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were spoken after. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house are we if we hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. So Jesus, Hebrews 3.3 says, was counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Jesus The Messiah would be a prophet as Deuteronomy 18.15 predicted. Moses commanded the Israelites, there'll be a prophet come after me, him listen to. And that prophet greater than Moses was and is in fact Jesus the Messiah. And then finally, I want to share with you the fact that Messiah's hands and feet would be pierced. David writes at the beginning of Psalm 22, these prophetic words, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Echoing the words of Christ on the cross. And then David writes in this royal Psalm about the Messiah in Psalm 22, verse 16, David wrote, for dogs have compassed me, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. And you remember John chapter 20, doubting Thomas comes up to Jesus And he earlier, after Jesus resurrected, Thomas said, I won't believe unless I see the nail prints in his hands. Then Jesus shows up in John chapter 20. Thomas sees him. And Jesus says to Thomas in John 20, verse 27, Reach hither thy finger and behold my hands, and reach hither my hand and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless but believing Thomas earlier had said, except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the prints of the nails and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. The Messiah's hands and feet would be pierced, but friends, there's more. Do you realize that when King David penned this psalm, Psalm 22, about a thousand years before Christ, crucifixion had not even been invented? Let that sink in. Crucifixion would, in fact, be invented by the Persians about four centuries after the time of David. It was the Romans who actually perfected the art, if you will, of this heinous death implement called crucifixion. Messiah's hands and feet would be pierced. David prophesied of that fact and that reality 
thousand years before Christ, four centuries before crucifixion was even invented. So there's a little bit of Messianic prophecy for you. I want to briefly touch on the fact that we do find the Trinity in the Old Testament. You know, God is a plurality. We have the Father, Son, and Spirit. And it's generally agreed upon that this Hebrew word Elohim is a plural noun, having the masculine plural ending im. In Genesis 1.1, the word Elohim is used of God in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God, Elohim, created the heavens and the earth. We also find plural pronouns regarding the Lord in Genesis 1.26. Then God said, Elohim said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. The Lord couldn't have been referring to angels since man was not created in the image of angels, but in the image of God. We also see this use of the plural pronoun that can be seen in Genesis 3:22, where the Lord Yahweh, also known the Lord God, Elohim, said, Behold, man has become like one of us in Genesis 11:7, the account of the Tower of Babel. God said, let us, let us, capital U.S., come, let us go down and there confuse their language. In Isaiah 6, verse 8, the word says, I also heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? So there's a little bit about the plurality of God. And we see this triune nature of God in the Hebrew scriptures very clearly. I'll give you a couple of examples. If you read your Old Testament, if you, for example, open up to Genesis 4 among hundreds of examples, when you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Lord, this is Yahweh. In Greek grammar, it's meaning four letters or the tetragrammaton. It's the proper name of the God of Israel. Religious Jews, many won't utter the name of God. It's too holy in their estimation. He's simply called the name or Hashem. But when you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D in the Old Testament, that is a reference to Yahweh. This is a reference to the Father. It's used more times than any others for the name of God in the Old Testament. For example, in Genesis 4.1, and Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain and said, I have begotten a man from the Lord, capital L-O-R-D. And then in verse 4 of Genesis 4, and the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, had respect unto Abel and to his offerings. And you get the idea. So when you read that, you get an idea. This is the father. Now, what about the son? You can see several places in the word of God. We talked about Isaiah 9-6, where the word says, for unto us a child is born, for unto us a son is given. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. There's a reference to the Son. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. There is also a reference to the Son. Daniel 7, verse 13. The Word of God says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Jesus refers to himself many times in the Gospels as the Son of Man. We also see the angel of the Lord several times in the Hebrew Scriptures. The angel of the Lord is what we would call a pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus. But there's a passage you may not be aware of. I want to read it. It's very compelling. I've used it in my years as a missionary to my Jewish people and to others in reference to the son. The writer of Proverbs wrote in Proverbs 30 these words. Listen to these words. 
Proverbs 30, verse 4, Who hath ascended up into heaven or descended? Who hath gathered the wind in his fists? Who hath bound the waters in a garment? Who hath established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? And what is his son's name if thou canst tell? Isn't that fascinating? So we see a picture of the son. Does God have a son? Well, the writer of Proverbs asked the question rhetorically, yes, God has a son. And his name is Yeshua. So I encourage you to do a word study of both Son and the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament in regards to the second person of the Godhead. Our triune God is a wonderful, wonderful God. Finally, God the Father, God the Son, now the God the Spirit, the Ruach HaKadosh. Genesis 1.1, we read in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, verse 2, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. That is the Ruach HaKadosh. The third person in the Godhead, the Holy Spirit. Remember David in Psalm 51, 11, after he sinned with Bathsheba and confessed his sin to God. He said, Lord, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. In Psalm 139, the psalmist wrote, where can I go from your spirit? I also encourage you to do a word study of the spirit in the Old Testament. It's really quite a fascinating study of the Trinity in the Old Testament clearly communicated there. Again, capital L-O-R-D for the Father. You'll see it replete in the Old Testament or Hebrew Scriptures. The Son encourage you to do a word study of the angel of the Lord and also the word Son in the Hebrew Scriptures. And then finally, we see the Spirit of God communicated as well. So I hope this brief study on Messianic prophecy and the Trinity in the Old Testament has been a help and an encouragement and an edification to your Christian faith. Next time, we are going to talk about New Testament applications and what it means to more effectively study the New Testament. Until next time, friends, the Lord richly bless you and keep you. Shalom. Jewish Roots of Christianity, the book, complete television series, and complete audio series are all available when you call 1-800-652-1144 or by visiting swrc.com. Mac Dominic joins James Collins now to expose how Freemasonry is influencing the church today. The Secret Society of Freemasonry continues to grow in popularity and membership. In fact, today many church pastors, deacons, and Sunday school teachers are also Masons. Despite the fact that Freemasonry teaches that its religion is far superior to any other religion on earth, including Christianity. Joining me to talk about this subject is one of my favorite Bible teachers, Mac Dominic. Mac and David Bay have produced a teaching DVD titled Masons in the Pulpit, which is available right now by calling 1-800-652-1144, or you can always order a copy online at swrc.com. Mac, welcome back to The Watchman on the Wall. Thank you, James. It's always a pleasure. You shared a story with me off the air about a man you interviewed years ago when you first started investigating this topic. Would you share that story? Sure. Back in the 1990s, when I first began investigating the New Age movement, I was having a conversation with my brother-in-law, and he knew a gentleman that was a well-respected, well-known, very wealthy man in his local community, and he said, well, why don't you give him a call, because I understand that he's been looking into the New Age movement as well. Maybe he could tell you some things. So I called this gentleman, and his first response was, well, what do you want to do this for? 
And I told him that I had compared teachings of the New Age movement to the Bible and found that it was diametrically opposed. And he said, well, he said, I kind of got into investigating this because a fraternal organization that I was a member of at the time asked me to do some research and had me started reading Alice Bailey books. And he said, I read the Alice Bailey books And although I wasn't a Christian at the time, I realized these books did not match up with what I learned in Sunday school. Mm -hmm. And I asked the man at the time, you mean to tell me that the local Masonic Lodge sent you to the Arcane School? And there was dead silence on the phone for at least 30 seconds. And he comes back and he says, how did you know that? And I told him, well, the information is out there for people that'll look. But I know that Alice and Foster Bailey were instrumental in starting the Arcane School, and I know that her writings were the direct result of automatic writing from a spirit guide, and I also know that she taught that Freemasonry was the whole modern holder of the mysteries that dated all the way back to ancient times, and I think she goes back as far as the Magi. So he was just blown away and could not believe that I knew that. But quite frankly, at that point in time, it confirmed to me that there was something rotten going on in Freemasonry. Isn't it true, Mac, that the Secret Society of Freemasonry has its roots in pagan religion, specifically the mystery Babylonian religion? We say that. We contend that to be the case. You know, we can only verify that back probably to the time of the Illuminati. That's what they themselves claimed. You know, Freemasonry claimed that the organization started with Hiram Abyss and the building of Solomon's Temple. Mm -hmm. When we look at what the so-called Babylonian mysteries, the Egyptian mystery religions, what we find is these mystery religions were the religions that required induction through an initiation process, and the results of such an induction was to give the individual a higher knowledge. Now, when we study the Bible and we study associated Mesopotamian documents, we find that Nimrod was up to his neck in that type of thing. As a matter of fact, there's a lot more to that story that we don't have time to go into. But if Nimrod was actually the Sumerian king in Merkur, which we think that he was, according to the Kumian legend, he accessed some spirits from prior to the flood to gain this special knowledge and the special benefits from the occult world and from the demonic world, quite honestly. When you follow the trail through from Nimrod to the Magi, even you read in the book of Ezekiel where God told Ezekiel to dig into the wall, and when he did, he saw men with symbols of all types of dreaded animals and beasts painted on the walls and worshiping as a secret society, a false religion, we see it come through there, and you follow it on through into the Second Temple Jewish literature, the Knights Templar, and even the debunked Priory Design, if you believe that it has been completely debunked, and Rosicrucians and all those secret societies, you find that the Freemasons are exactly what Alice Bailey said, 
And he said that they were the keepers of the mysteries that you can date at least as far back as the Magi, if not all the way back to Egypt and Babylon. Mac, the Freemasons have an ultimate goal of rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. What, according to the Bible, will happen when the temple is rebuilt? That's a very interesting prophetic story, isn't it, James? Yes. We realize that prophetically speaking, that when you read the prophecies in the Word of God, you find that the temple has to be rebuilt because Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 24, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet stand in the holy place, and I'm quoting from memory here, but he says, he that understands, let him understand that reads, then flee into the mountains for a time of great tribulation such as never been in the entire time of the earth will then come upon mankind. And so we see that at the beginning of the tribulation, the temple must be rebuilt. And we also know that the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet is when the man, the Satan's man, will stand up in the holy place. We see in the book of Revelation that the false prophet will give life to the image of the beast, which is in the holy place of the temple. So the temple must be rebuilt in order for the false Christ to be worshipped as the Jewish Messiah. It is a very tangled web, and it's hard to decipher the whole thing. That is part of the issue, is that, you know, the Freemasons said that they came into being with Hiram Abyss. They teach that Hiram Abyss himself is coming back to rebuild the new temple. The Jewish, Second Temple Jewish writings talk about how Solomon incorporated demons to help rebuild the temple, specifically Asmodeus was the demon that they said helped Solomon, and Asmodeus was the son of Shimehaza, one of the fallen watchers, and Naamah, the daughter of Lamech. You look into all this and you discover that there are deep, occult, demonic things going on behind the scenes here, which apparently the higher levels of Freemasonry access, you know, and you come back to what I was talking about with the gentleman I spoke to, this gentleman was a very wealthy, respected man in the community. They saw the opportunity to raise him up through the organization into the higher levels that the rank and file of Freemasonry doesn't even understand what's going on there. And when they have the higher levels studying Alice Bailey writings, which were written via automatic writing from a demonic spirit guide, they are indoctrinating people into the occult. And so you have these high-level folks in that organization that are listening to the doctrines of devils. There's no other way to slice it. Well, we certainly see the signs pointing to the temple being rebuilt in Jerusalem very soon. One of those signs is deception, even in the church pulpit. This is James Collins reminding you that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Our featured resource today is Mac Dominic and David Bay's explosive DVD, Masons in the Pulpit. Order your copy when you call 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. Or order Masons in the Pulpit DVD online. Visit swrc.com. That's swrc.com. 
Tomorrow, Billy Crone shares what the Bible says about the rapture of the church. Be sure to tune in on your favorite radio station or by subscribing to our daily Watchman on the Wall podcast. Watchman on the Wall is a production of Southwest Radio Ministries and has been supported for 89 years by faithful listeners like you. Visit swrc.com. That's swrc.com.